Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Since well before Victor Hugo looked up at Notre Dame and thought, huh, what if a hunchback lived in there? Authors have been inspired by Paris. The Storytime in Paris podcast will help keep this tradition alive with interviews and readings from your favorite contemporary authors with a French connection. Every episode features five questions asked by you, our author's biggest fans, and answered live on air. Then our authors will treat us to a reading of an excerpt from their book. Who knows? Maybe you'll even be inspired to write your own great French novel. I'm your host, Jennifer Garrity. My guest today is Allison Richmond. Allison is a USA Today and number one internationally best-selling author of seven historical novels, including The Velvet Hours, The Mask Carver's Son, and The Last Van Gogh. Her work has been adapted into 25 languages, and her best-selling novel, The Lost Wife, is currently being adapted into a feature film. Allison's eighth novel, The Secret of Clouds, is a contemporary work which interweaves the story of a family that emigrated from Ukraine with a young teacher from Long Island trying to find her way. It's a tribute to the bonds between teacher and student, and a story about love in all its forms. Please let me introduce Allison Richmond, author of The Secret of Clouds. Hello, Allison. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Can you start off by telling our audience a little bit uh, about you and your work? Sure. Um, so I am a historical novelist. I've been writing for the past 20 years. Um, I've published seven novels, and my, my books have been translated into 25 languages. And one of my novels, The Lost Wife, is in development to be a major motion picture. That's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Can I ask how involved with you you are in the process of making it into a film? You know, well, I am involved in the sense that I'm consulted for, you know, all the decisions that are being made by the the producers. Uh, the screenwriter and I have a very good relationship. Um, he's done a lovely job with the script. They recently just attached a director and we're hoping to see if, you know, we can get a studio behind the behind the film. So, you know, it's one it's wonderful. It's a lot it's a lot more um, pieces to come together when you're making a film than when you're writing a book and it's just you, your editor in the publishing house. But it's exciting to, you know, think about how something that you create might be, you know, then transferred into a whole other different type of art form and see how it manifests itself that way. That's really exciting. I'm going to keep my fingers tightly crossed <laughs> okay, for you. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your latest book, which is not historical fiction, The Secret of Clouds. Right. So I did have a bit of, de of a departure with my uh, most recent book, The Secret of Clouds. It is a contemporary novel that takes place on Long Island. It was inspired by um, a real life story of a friend of mine who is a teacher in a local school district who every year assigns to her class um, the assignment 
to write a letter to their 18-year-old self. So in the case of my friend, she teaches third graders and she passes around a piece of paper and an envelope and she asks them to record, you know, how they imagine themselves at 18, what their hopes and dreams are, where they think they'll be, and then to address the letter to themselves um, with a message on the back of the envelope that says, a letter from the past with a message for the future. And she collects the letters and puts them in a manila folder in, in her basement with the, the date that those children will actually graduate high school 10 years later. And she holds on to those letters for that decade, mailing them back to the children um, as on the week that they graduate high school. And so when I heard about this incredible assignment that she did every year for the past 20 years, I mean, my first reaction was that I was sort of blown away by her dedication as a, as a teacher, because here she was creating a assignment that didn't end that day, that week, or even that school year. It was something that really took 10 years in order to see it in its full completion. And so I was incredibly, um, impressed by her dedication and her foresight to sort of know that this would, you know, impact them 10 years later when they received a letter in their childlike hand and, you know, were forced to reflect on whether they achieved those goals or if they had changed, you know, in, in those 10 years. And as they were about to embark on this really exciting journey to be young adults, you know, going off to college in, in most cases. But on a more soulful, creative level, I thought in 20 years of having this assignment, did anything ever happen to one of the children or one of their letters? And so I asked her and, you know, her whole face sort of transformed. And she said there were a handful of things that had happened over the course of 20 years of teaching with different students and sometimes their letters. And that, you know, one that stood out in high relief to her was this one particular student that she was asked to tutor early on in her career. I think she was two years into teaching who was too sick to go to school. And so she tutored him after school at home in the English language arts, but she felt it was very important still to give him the same assignment that she gave the other students at class. So she, you know, has him write the letter and 20, you know, 20 years, 10 years later, when those letters are mailed back to the children, something very poignant happens with his letter, something that I use, I don't want to give away the plot of the book, but it that letter enables the reader to see sort of the full arc of this transformative friendship that a child, you know, a student and a teacher has, and also the impact that it has on a family, you know, a family who has a sick child. So um, for me, it just as soon as I heard that story, I imagined it as a novel because it had all those threads of, you know, emotional connective tissue that things that make you realize what's around you and the impact that teachers have on, on, on children every day, but also how children impact, you know, teachers every day as well and help transform them. And although this book is definitely a contemporary novel, it, you know, I wanted it to still have some historical references. So in the case of my friend who's you know, student, you know, was not an immigrant to America. I wanted to create my character of Yuri in The Secret of Clouds, who is a is an immigrant. Um, his family comes from Ukraine shortly, you know, after the Chernobyl accident, and he's born with a rare heart defect. That's sort of the cause of his, you know, one of the reasons he can't go to school. And I weave in backflashes of what happened in Ukraine at that time, um, I had had a babysitter for my son when he was a toddler who had been in, in Ukraine when Chernobyl happened, and she actually was a neonatal nurse and had seen all these children who were born years later with rare heart defects, in some cases, childhood cancers. And she had said over tea one afternoon how it was so hard for her to reconcile how a, her government 
did not inform their population that this terrible accident had happened and how they all thought that it was just this unseasonably warm weather and how they were all sunbathing in the sunlight and they were bathing in the you know water that was unseasonably warm and that they had no idea that years later it would have these terrible health effects. And so I wanted to bring that into the book to have this historical component so readers also learn about something that they might not have known before. Yeah, excellent. And that the story of Yuri and the story of of Katya and the time just after Chernobyl, mm-hmm. it was very impactful, just so you know. Like that was really just sort of figuring out along with them, maybe a little bit before them too, what mm-hmm. was happening. Yeah, it added a whole other dimension to your book. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your connection to France and maybe more specifically to Paris? <laughs> well, I actually adore France. Um, my father is actually a quarter French, so that's also very nice. That, so I've always been drawn to the country and the beauty and the culture. Uh, I was an art history major in college as well. So, of course, you know, Paris and France is filled with beautiful art and a, a long, rich history of, of artists. Um, I have... I'm trying to think, at least three novels, which um, brought me to Paris for research. My first novel, The Mass Carver's Son, um, was about a Japanese artist in the turn of the century who wants to paint with the Impressionists and travels you know, to Paris to study with Raphael Collin, who was an academic painter at the time. And so I did a lot of research and not just the journey of Japanese artists who came to Paris when um, the Meiji period opened up uh, in Japan for the first time, allowing their artists to come to study abroad, but also the impact of, you know, Orientalism in in Paris with the Impressionists, how it worked both ways, how French Impressionists were impacted by um, Far Eastern culture, as well as artists in the Far East being impacted by by French culture. So that was my first novel. Um, My third novel, The Last Van Gogh, centers around the last 70 days of Vincent van Goes life seen through the eyes of Dr. Gachet's daughter, Marguerite Gachet, which many people believe was Vincent's final muse before he took his own life. So I was able to go to Paris to look at you know, many of his you know, pieces of artwork that are on display at the Musée d'Orsay, and then traveling to Auvers-sur-Oise, where he spent his last days under the care of Dr. Gachet, which was wonderful. Vincent was originally buried there. Um, so there's you know, a, a tree actually that grows where his, his, his grave was before he was reburied to be closer to Theo, his brother. Um, my book, The Velvet Hours, was about a courtesan who lived in Paris during the turn of the century, shuttered her apartment right on, you know, as World War II was happening. And it's a novel that I also had to come to Paris to research to see where the apartment was, to look at the whole atmosphere of what it would have been like to be a courtesan in the Belle Epoque. And um, yeah, so I've had, you know, those those three novels are the ones that brought me to Paris. But I've been a tourist as well. I just going there just because it's so beautiful and wonderful. And I'm very envious of you, Jennifer, living there now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have compiled some questions from your fans and your followers. So my question for you is related to what you were just talking about. Your novels have such a strong sense of place from Paris to Prague to Portofino and then (laughs) Long Island. How do you choose where you set your novels? Does the location dictate the story or the other way around? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, for the most part, I ch- the the story dictates the place, and so when I know the story, I, I I have to go to the place to research it so that I can, you know, bring it alive to you. I, I feel that you know, I I come from sort of an artistic background. My mother was a painter. At one point, I thought I was going to be a painter, but I ended up majoring in art history. But when I write, I really try and make it very sensory rich and very visual, so that you can see everything very clearly. And there's always a certain palette. You know, the way I write my chapter whether it's the dove gray walls and, you know, velvet of Martha de Florence apartment in Paris or in Prague, the cut crystal and the bohemian glass, the red velvets that you see in, in, in you know, that sort of Art Nouveau architecture, interior architecture. So I need to see it to write it. So, um, but the story is is always there before I, I knew I was going to write a book about this apartment in Paris. I, therefore, I had to go to Paris to see it. But it's, it's a wonderful thing about being a novelist that you you get to, to do the hands-on research and to see things and experience and, and it enriches you on such a personal level. It's also a great excuse to go visit places you've never been yeah. to before. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a place you really want to go. Just find a story set there. That's true. That's true. I have to start thinking like that. Absolutely. (laughs) So you described yourself as a historical novelist, but The Secret of Clouds is a departure from that set uh, contemporarily on uh, Long Island, New York. What was it like writing a book that's so much closer to you, both historically and geographically? Well, it was certainly easier for sure, you know, writing from my own backyard. And it also felt more personal because I grew up, you know, basically a few miles from where this story takes place. So for me, it was a really wonderful opportunity to sort of, you know, immortalize the way I saw my childhood or those places. Even in the course of of writing this, things were changing. Like I mentioned a place called Wicks Farm where I had grown up always getting my pumpkins and there was a big paper mache witch that had always been there, you know, since I was born. And while I was writing The Secret of Clouds, the farm closed and, you know, the witch was basically left to sort of live in a state of decay. <laughs> so, you know, it's knowing that that wasn't going to be there much longer was was very bittersweet and really, I you know, propelled me to make sure that all the details were there for, you know, a sense of longevity, that they would be there someplace. So. so speaking again about your passion for historical fiction, these times in history, if you could live at any place at any time in history, where and when would it be? Oh, it's such a good question. I think I would like to live in Venice in the 1920s, maybe, you know, so around the time Peggy Guggenheim probably was there, you know, when a lot of expats were there, but it was still this very mysterious, evocative, beautiful city that emerges out of the water. Venice has a real uh, soft spot for me, you know, because it is this place that sort of defies reality in a way that this city sort of emerges out of the lagoon. Um, And I love the colors and I love it in every season, especially November when the mist sort of merges with, you know, the sky. And so I would, I think, and I love the fashions of the 20s. So I'd I'd like to be in Peggy Guggenheim's circle and... and There. <laughs> you could pick something very specific. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a great answer. <laughs> we'll be right back with Storytime in Paris after a word from our sponsors. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to story time in Paris. So, turning now to the secret of clouds specifically, mm-hmm. I think you may have answered this already, but did you know how the novel would end before you began? I did know. I did know because I did want to model it on my friend's experience and how it transformed her as a teacher. I knew how it was going to end. But the letter that Yuri writes is very personal to me because my friend said that my the that Yuri's letter was very soulful and and much more prescient than the average, you know, 12-year-old. And it had a lot of philosophy to it, but you know, and so I wanted to make sure that it rang true from, you know, the emotional authenticity of a 12-year-old. And so my my grandmother had passed away while I was writing this book, and my son was actually 12 years old when I was writing this book. So I looked to my son in a lot of different places to be able to, to create Yuri's character. First of all, my son loves baseball. He's actually now playing in college and the college team. And so I knew that that would be the hook because every teacher says that they, you know you need a hook to get through to a student who might not be so willing to learn or be reticent on some level. And so I knew baseball would be the hook between Maggie and Yuri. But when my grandmother died and I was forced to sort of explain death to my son, um, he he kept on saying, I don't understand. I, how can we never see grandma again and everything? And he said, I just hope that every family has a family cloud. You know that one. You know one day she's, she's. I'm going to see her again, and she'll be waiting for me. And so I wanted to put that sort of emotion of you know a 12 year old who you know has these life challenges of how he sees the world, you know how he sees the afterlife um, into the into his into his letter, and that you know that was obviously not something, although the the emotion of of something prescient came from my friend and the reality of her story, the actual words of the letter were really taken from a much more personal level within my own family. Hmm. Hey, interesting. You so you mentioned this the Maggie using baseball to get to Yuri. She takes a lot of care in the books that she chooses for her students. How did you choose the books that Maggie chooses? Oh, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. I actually chose books that my children love the most. So, like Number of the Stars is my daughter's favorite favorite book. The Shoeless Joe is my son's, and so I again I was like led, you know, again led by children who were in real time, almost those characters, right? Like giving giving back to me as a writer to make sure that the characters were authentic. I mean, the same example of like when in the novel. Finn gives Yuri his trophy. I have a dear friend whose son has 
had epilepsy and was going to be having a, a procedure done to sort of relieve the symptoms. It was actually brain surgery. And he was going in for the operation. And a few days before, they came to our house and the boys were upstairs playing. And I was downstairs with my friend and her and my friend's son came down carrying one of you know Zachary's baseball trophies. And her my friend said, what are you doing with one of his trophies? Put it back. And she said, no, Zachary gave it to me. And Zachary said, yes, no, he can have it. I, you know, I want him to have it. And reluctantly she let, you know, she, she let her son take home one of Zachary's trophies. And, you know, she later then texted me from the hospital with like a snapshot of, of her son sleeping with the trophy after his operation and saying it just made him feel like, you know, he was a champ and, and it just made me so happy, but it also made me realize that's how a 12 year old boy shows empathy, you know, and caring, like, you know, that they might not have the language to express it, but that language, it, there's another form of language it's in those gestures. And I'm always looking as a novelist for those different forms of language that we use to communicate between each other. For me, that's sort of fascinating. Um, in, the, in my book, the, you know, the, the, the Garden of Letters, music is sort of this other form of language. In The Secret of Clouds, food, I think, also is another language. You know, how different gifts of, of food communicate things that are often difficult to express, whether it's grief or it's, you know, compassion. In the case of even Yuri's father offering uh, Kasha when she first arrives, you know, it's it's French, you know, friendship and invitation to learn another person's culture. So I'm always looking for those different little nuanced ways to communicate something with, you know, that isn't always dialogue or, you know, language. Yeah, the, the food for sure came through in your book. <laughs> How different people used food, how important it was to them, what they were trying to say with it. Yeah, your book made me very hungry. <laughs> my friend, Mag, you know, who inspired Maggie, my friend Christina, she's Italian-American. And, and so, you know, the lasagna is very true to her. Like, I will get a lasagna if I'm feeling down from her mother, these, you know, lemon ricotta cookies. It's just, and she'll, some, once I got a bag that had these cookies in it that said food equals love. And so I really wanted to put that into the book, you know, this sense of, of how, Food is this language of, of, of affection. Yeah. Well, speaking of Maggie and her mom, I think you're going to read a little excerpt of your book for us. Yes, yes. Is there anything that we need to know contextually before we start? No, I mean, I think this excerpt sort of introduces you to how, you know, Maggie and, and Yuri meet and this sort of, you know, the, this, it just shows the blossoming seeds of their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It had been my mother who encouraged me to leave my job in PR and pursue a job in teaching. She took one look at me that spring after I'd been working nearly a year at Mellencamp Strategies and said, your eyes are looking dim, sweetheart. What happened to that sparkle I know so well? It's just not how I imagined it would be, I complained. I thought I'd like the frenetic speed of things in the office, the excitement of trying to help package the latest account. But everyone is angry half the time and yelling at each other. I feel sick to my stomach every day. Nervous my boss is going to scream at me because I didn't order enough bagels for the director's meeting, and I'm getting an ulcer over a job where I'm not even using my brain. My mother was quiet for a moment. You're 23, honey. You know you're young enough to make a career change. One thing you never get back is your time. But to what? She knew the answer before I'd even asked the question. She had seen me dress up since I was a little girl and put my father's reading glasses on top of my head and used the easel in my basement as a makeshift blackboard. From the moment I first walked into kindergarten class, the classroom felt like my natural arena. 
I instinctively gravitated toward the desk closet to the teacher. I relished the proximity to this person who knew the answer to every one of my questions, and when they were talented, exuded an energy that radiated from every pore. Every day I put my books on the classroom windowsill and pretended it was my own bookshelf. When I was in an elementary school, I imagined I was a teacher. I sat with my back straight and my eyes alert, and I could transport myself into her seat or see myself standing in front of the blackboard. You can go back to school for your master's. Apply now and see if you can get in. It can't hurt, Maggie. You're a person who thrives on a real sense of purpose. That's why you're unhappy at your job. She gave a little tap on my forehead. Your brain is being wasted, she said, and so is your heart. I knew my mother was right. During my last year of college at Michigan, my friends were looking forward to their first jobs at banks or large corporations. Bill had accepted a job at a big insurance company that he had landed through one of his fraternity connections, and he couldn't wait to start. But I loathed the thought of leaving school. I lived for it. I loved its various cycles. There was always a chance to do something new and learn something different the following year with another set of professors. I didn't look back once I started teaching. I loved the energy it gave me, the electricity that began as soon as I entered the classroom. It was so much more rewarding than marketing a new brand of marshmallows or a toothpaste that whitened your smile. Teaching was about opening children's mind to infinite possibilities, to make them think and question the world around them. There were certainly some days that left me exhausted or irritated, but how many jobs could actually give you the opportunity to make an impact on a life? With teaching, I had finally found a sense of purpose. The following afternoon, after my last class was over, I prepared to meet Yuri. I opened up my big floppy bag and placed my notebook and folder in it. I had written up a handout for all my students that described much of what we would be doing that year. I couldn't wait to get the children working on their individual writer's notebooks. I was happy that in less than a half an hour, I'd have a better sense of Yuri and what our time together would be like. I had willed myself not to imagine how sick he might appear. I didn't want to impress my memories of Ellie onto Yuri. I glanced at the address Mr. Nelson had given to me and took a deep breath. The Krasny residence was only a 15-minute drive from the school, just past Marich's Road and not too far from the local farm where Bill and I had bought corn all summer. The house was small, nearly the same size as our rental, but the exterior paint was peeling and it seemed to sag in a sigh of neglect. Outside, there was a brick pathway that followed from the curb to the door. Dandelions poked out from the spaces in the cement joints, and the grass was covered in patches of clover. I parked on the street and checked my face in the rearview mirror. I had been up since 6 a.m. that day, and my face clearly showed it. I wanted to make a good first impression, and a weary face surely wasn't the way to get a new student enthused about schoolwork. I fumbled in my bag for my mascara and lipstick and reapplied my makeup quickly. I reached over for my handbag, locked the car, and made my way toward the house, dandelions folding beneath my feet. We'll be right back with Storytime in Paris after a word from our sponsors. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to story time in Paris. Thank you so much for that. Uh, what's next for you? What can we look forward to? <laughs> um, I have a, a book that takes place in the Civil War uh, in America coming out in August called The Thread Collectors. Um, it was co-written with a friend of mine by the name of Shauna J. Edwards, who comes from Louisiana and has um, roots down south. And the book is about a Black Union officer, you know, musician in the Civil War and a Jewish musician um, and this unexpected friendship that blooms between the two men with also a backstory of their two beloveds back home on how they get their men back safely um, from the front. Wow. You said that's uh, coming out in the spring? Yeah, yeah, August 30th. All the thread collectors. Yes. Okay. I'm going to look for that. I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) So where can people find you? How can they keep up to date with what's going on in your world? Oh, well, um, you can reach me in a couple places. I'm at Instagram at Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N, Richmond, R-I-C-H-M-A-N. And I also have a Facebook page, um, Allison Richmond Author. So you can look me there and hopefully you can find my books at, you know, your local independent bookstore and also on, on all the online retailers. Absolutely. And we'll include links for everything in our show oh, notes too. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> thank you so much, Allison. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. You too. Thank you for, the, for doing this and good luck with your, your future podcast. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Enjoy Paris for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Storytime in Paris. Thank you again to Alison Richmond for joining me today. You can visit her website, Alison Richmond, A-L-Y-S-O-N-R-I-C-H-M-A-N.com for more information. And she's at Alison Richmond on Instagram and Alison Richmond author on Facebook. Please join me next week when my guest will be Julie Skolnick, author of the memoir, Paris Blue. Check back in to see if your questions have been answered and to hear a reading from her book. Don't forget to subscribe to Storytime in Paris on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever it is you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can find the full Storytime in Paris playlist on parisundergroundradio.com slash storytimeinparis and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Paris Underground Radio. My name is Jennifer Garrity. Storytime in Paris is produced by me for the Paris Underground Radio Podcast Network. For more on this show and to discover more great podcasts, please visit parisundergroundradio.com. Thank you and happy listening.